when you say you want to shrink Israel more, how much should we shrink it? After the Shoah, you want to shrink Israel more? What, is, what should Israel be? Maybe we should say the entire state of Israel should be 100 blocks. It, it, it's, it's insane. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome back to another episode of the Koren podcast. Uh, in our last episode, we spoke with Ben M. Freeman, uh, the author of Jewish Pride Rebuilding a People, um, who's an educator, campaigner and author focusing on anti-Semitism. Um, and we discussed a number of issues, uh, especially those that relate to the most recent wave of anti-Semitism across the world. Um, and this week, we're continuing that discussion, um, but uh, we were privileged to speak with Rabbi Marvin Heyer. That's right, Rabbi Heyer is the founder, CEO, and president of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, um, a legend in the fight against anti-Semitism for decades. Uh, he is also a uh, recipient of two Academy Awards, two Oscars, um, and has personal relationships with many of Hollywood's leading studio heads um, and personalities. Um, he was the first Orthodox rabbi in American history to be invited to deliver an invocation of a presidential inauguration, um, and also the first American to be chosen by the Israeli government to light the torch of remembrance on uh, Yom Atzimut on Israel's Independence Day. So it was a great honor for us to be joined by uh, him on this week's episode um, and to hear his thoughts and reflections um, on his time um, in the fights against anti-Semitism. Of course, we, we often record these introductions after we've spoken uh, to our guests. So, so we know we know what's coming. And it was really interesting uh, to sort of see the difference in approach um, between Ben, uh, who is really still at the start of his career um, fighting anti-Semitism, and Rabbi Haya, who has, as you say, has been a legend uh, and a real hero um, in, in the battle against uh, Jew hatred. Um, for many, many decades, and to see those two very different perspectives. And of course, it would be remiss of us not to mention the Rabbi Haya, as well as being the founder of the Simon Wiesenthal Center um, and being in the, the forefront of the fight against anti-Semitism, uh, also came up uh, together with uh, Koren publisher Matthew Miller with the idea and concept for, for the Koren Mikrot Hadorot series. Uh, you can find more uh, about that story in the introduction to each volume where Rabbi Haya is thanked and mentioned uh, for his involvement in the conception of that incredible series. So if you haven't listened yet to last week's episode, uh, please press pause, go back uh, and listen to our conversation with Ben Freeman. Um, if you have listened to that, uh, then please enjoy. Let's jump straight in. We are delighted and honoured to be joined by Rabbi Marvin Heyer. Rabbi Heyer, thank you so much for joining us on the Corin Podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. So for those of you that I mean, the few people that maybe don't know you uh, who haven't had a chance yet to read your book, uh, Meant to Be, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to found the Simon Wiesenthal Center? Well, uh, I was born on the Lower East Side of New York City. Uh, my parents, my father was a lamp polisher. My Zayda uh, worked at Stride Spots. And... Uh, it never occurred to me, uh, you know, I went to Yeshiva, Yeshiva Sarbeni Shlomo Kaluga. There, 
I had a bar mitzvah teacher, Rabbi Yankel of Flansgrab, a satma chosid, the chaber of the sefer, Beis Yankov on Shas. And he was also a bar mitzvah teacher on the side. And I'll never forget that when I studied with him for my bar mitzvah, and I, w- I was reading the Aftorah, he insisted that I read the Aftorah very loud. And he came over to me and he told me the following. He said, he said, Moshallah, Hecha, much louder. He says, you have to say the Aftorah for the millions of children, Jewish children that were slaughtered in the Shoah that will never have a bar mitzvah. So you have to be motzi them too. Do never say the Aftorah quietly, loud. And that was the first time that the subject of the Shoah really resonated with me and never occurred to me. And so I paid careful attention after that. And in the shul, in the Litovitzka shul, I then saw so many Kelmal and Rachmans that were made. And when I asked my father, he said, this is for families that were killed in the Shoah. That's when the Shoah really entered my mind to say, you know what? And so later on, years later, I went to Yeshua's Rabbeinu Yankov Yosef, I got smicha, and uh, there was an occasion. Uh, so uh, a rabbi, uh, Rabbi Goldenberg, was looking for an assistant, and he came to the base medrash of RJJ, and uh, the Rebbe recommended, uh, the Ronda Rosh Hashivas recommended me, and I went into the rabbinate, went to Vancouver, and at that time, the Holocaust, never left my mind. I started reading many, many books on the Shoah. And while I was in Vancouver one time, I took a group of people to Vienna. And uh, I I had no appointments. I didn't even know that you have to make an appointment. Uh, And I said, I wonder where Simon Wiesendahl lives. And I uh, went there and he came out of his room he was talking on the phone. He finished. He came out of his room. He was very busy. He came over and gave me Shalom Aleichem. That was the first time I met him. Later on, I will just comment on this. Later on, when I had the idea to create the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and I went again to Vienna, I uh, so then he... Uh, said that uh, uh, we were meeting at the Intercontinental Hotel and I made my case and I noted, he noticed that I was sort of surprised that he's speaking so loud. Here we are in the Intercontinental Hotel, there are maybe 75, 80 people that are in that hotel in the dining room. And you know, I had only a food plate then. So, and he speaks so loud and he noticed, Simon notices that I'm uncomfortable about him speaking so loud. 
So he says to me like this, he says, Abihaya, I see that you are wondering why I'm speaking so loud. Let me tell you why. I was in six camps. I could hardly whisper in those six concentration camps. Now I'm sitting here in the Intercontinental Hotel. Yes, I want them all to hear that I am talking loud. And what will be the consequences? They will come over to me and say, Mr. Wiesenthal, why are you speaking that loud? I'll come right over to them and I'll say to them, why are you, what were you doing in the years 1939 to 1945? Says most of the people sitting here that are past 65 were Nazis. He says, those days are over when Jews are going to speak quietly. That was our problem during the Shoah. And uh, he said, if they don't like it and they come over to me, I will, I will ask them what they did between those years. And the other thing he told me, I asked him, Simon, why are you conducting your worldwide important and critical work in Vienna? Why don't you go to New York? There are so many Jews there. They will help you. And he said to me, listen, Abihaya, when you are researching malaria, you go where the mosquitoes are. You know why I'm, I'm in Vienna? That's where the Nazis are. And you know what's sad about that comment that he made to me? Today, I wonder, let's say that Simon Wiesenthal would be alive and would be witnessing these anti-Semitic attacks all over the world. You know what he would say? Maybe I should live in the United States because that's where all the haters are. I mean, we, we really want to dive into, I mean, Simon Wiesenthal's legacy and, and the work that you've dedicated your life to. Um, but I think before we can do that, and perhaps there's no better person to ask than you, um, which is a very difficult question. Um, but, you know, aside from just blind hatred, what are some of the causes of anti-Semitism? Um, you know, both historically, um, in more recent history, and then especially um, you know, this most recent rise that we've been seeing over the past you know, few months and couple of years. Well, first of all, I think that there are many people in the world uh, that, you know, if you listen to the speeches of, let's say, Louis Farrakhan, he hates the fact that Jews were successful. Nobody will argue that the Jews took a shortcut in our history. There were no shortcuts. We paid the supreme price. We worked hard. My grandfather, my father was a lamp polisher, came home late at night, hardly had any lunch, never went to a cafeteria, took a sandwich or two, worked 12, 15 hour, hours a day. The Jews didn't snap their finger and therefore they became wealthy or comfortable. They worked hard at it with Monsieur Asnefesh. And we didn't, we, 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 we didn't uh, make robbery a, 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 a distinction by which Joe, Jews would be known. Here, it's the honest truth. People think that we snapped our fingers, 
We did nothing. And Jews became wealthy and they have the best positions. They live in nice houses. They don't realize all this took hard work. Whoever was successful worked around the clock. We didn't take any shortcuts. We didn't rob banks. We paid the supreme price by working hard. So when you listen to a member of the United States Congress saying in the Congress, it's all about the Benjamins, baby, meaning Benjamin Franklin, the $100 bills, suggesting that the Jews took a shortcut. Maybe we robbed banks. That's how we became that wealthy. It's outrageous. That's what Hitler said. When Hitler wrote a letter, we owned that letter, September 16, 1919. We owned the Hitler letter, where Hitler wrote the following, that basically he said that the Jews, you know, that it was wealth. It was the wealth of the Jews that he couldn't stand. But he thought, you know, you would think that we took shortcuts and it's so unfair. So when when why is there anti-Semitism? Because they hate the fact that the Jewish people are successful as a small nation, paid a supreme price in history. And many Jews are scientists. Look what Jews have done in the field of medicine. I doubt if any ethnic group can compare with what Jews have contributed. As a matter of fact, I noted that Farrakhan had two surgeries. His surgeries, the surgery itself, and the medicine that he was using was basically created by Jews. Should be thanking Jews, not hating them. And, I mean, obviously you've had a long career now addressing anti-Semitism. You mentioned just now in terms of what, what's been heard, the kind of comments that have been heard in Congress, let's say, over the last couple of years. Um, what are some of the changing trends that you've seen over your career fighting anti-Semitism? Well, the changes, look, first of all, there's ignorance. Most people, nine out of 10 people, you're talking about fairness. Well, here's an issue. The Jews are not complaining about this, but here's an issue. The Arab world, all the Arab countries together, is more than 5 million square miles. Most people do not know the entire state of Israel is 8,630 square miles. Israel is ranked today 149th in the world in terms of countries. So when you say, what do you want to do with Israel today? We want to shrink it more. It's not enough that you're 149th in the world. We'd like to see that you're the last country in the world in terms of square miles. Even though we paid the supreme price, as Simon Wiesenthal used to say, during the British Empire, the creation of the British Empire, there were approximately, he says, three, four million Jews in the world. By that figure, there should have been today, in terms of the Jewish population around the world, there should have been maybe 60 million, 50 million Jews. There's nowhere near that because of the slaughter. We pay the price. And so, and then the other thing is ignorance. What do I mean by ignorance? Most people do not know that, look, in terms of uh, Islam, Islam, Mecca is the holiest city in Islam, located, of course, in, in Saudi Arabia. Jerusalem is never mentioned in the Quran. If it is essential 
to the Arab culture, wouldn't you think that in the Quran, almost every page, we should mention Jerusalem? Not a single mention of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, in the Torah, Yerushalayim is mentioned 669 times in, 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 the, in the biblical narrative of the Jewish people. But on the other hand, not once. So when the Arab world, when you listen to the Iranians and you listen to Hamas, they, you know, play their, their score and say that Jerusalem is there. What, what Jerusalem is there? Where did they get it from? King David didn't live in Spain. Jeremiah didn't live in it didn't live in Germany, and Isaiah didn't live in France. They all lived in in this in what what is the state of Israel and close to what is Jerusalem. But when do you think you can pinpoint? I mean, obviously, looking at the last couple of weeks' events. Uh, where we've seen this rise of anti-Semitism, you know, we've seen footage from the streets of LA, probably just, you know, within a couple of miles of where you're sitting right now, of you know, openly anti-Semitic attacks and, and actions on the streets. And that, that was brought about essentially as a response to what's been happening here in Israel. When, when did that, when do you think that happened? When did that change happen where anti-Semitism was basically a response to what was going on in, in Israel specifically? Well, first of all, what happened in Israel, it, it, it's amazing. I saw that Yedir Tachrono, the wonderful article Yedir Tachrono, which basically said that, uh, you know, it was amazing to see that the United States in their in their attacks, our own country, the attacks in Afghanistan, the amount of children that were killed in Afghanistan is not to be compared to the Israeli when Israel responded to the Hamas rockets. But the, the, world, the world doesn't know that. And as I said before, the New York Times gives you, gives full courage cover, coverage what's happening. Whenever there's something in the Arab world, they get full coverage. The uh, UN UNRWA, UNRWA only UNRWA, as far as UNRWA is concerned, the nicest countries in the world are Hamas and Iran, because they, all oh, Israel Israel is worthy of it. Of, uh, we have to have an examination as to what happened, how Israel conducted the war. Why don't you have an examination on the lies that Iran did to President Obama when President Obama made a deal with them and secretly they violated that that, that rule every single day? UNRWA is not interested in that. Tell them Israel, UNRWA wakes up in the middle of the night. They say Slich. As soon as you say Israel, they're willing to go to Slich. It could be 2 a.m. in the morning. I mean, you mentioned say, a, uh, a disparity in, in terms of, let's say, re- reporting in the mainstream media. Um, like how, do you think, how much do you think that, that sort of perpetuates uh, the situation at the moment? Just in terms of either Jews being unfairly, unfairly represented and, and you know, reporting on Israel as the, the arch nemesis of oh, the world. Oh, I think it's terrible. Um, uh, not only the uh, reporters in, in newspapers, also television companies is unfair, it's one-sided, nobody knows. In other words, what, when you say you want to shrink Israel more, how much should we shrink it? After the Shoah, you want to shrink Israel more? What, is, what should Israel be? Maybe, maybe it should be a, a hundred, maybe we should say the entire state of Israel should be a hundred blocks. It, it just, it's, it's insane that they want to shrink Israel, that Israel should be, as I said before, maybe a hundred blocks is another act pure anti-Semitism. So UNRWA can, you know, if you keep behaving that way, 
you are the world headquarters for anti-Semitism, that the Tulsa massacre covered all over the world. Not a word about why, why didn't they do a story on the Grand Mufti that there was the 80th anniversary? Because it would make the Palestinian leadership look terrible. They don't want to do that. So they skip the anniversary. Now, if you would at least tell me, oh, you know what? We skipped it, but we promise you by the 100th anniversary, we're going to cover it. I guarantee you by the 100th anniversary, they won't cover it. Because there's one rule for the rest of the world and another rule for the Jews. And, and, and that's all the news that's fit to be print, uh, the, the Times logo. Yes, I'd say change your logo and then people will be more for you. Some of the news worth, not all the news, because you, when it comes to Jews, they're not included. Yeah. And by the way, I want, I want to say another thing that I think uh, you didn't ask me this question, but I would tell you something. A great Simon Wiesenthal had no idea how much he was respected by people. Uh, and I'll tell you a, a story that is in the book. Uh, in the book that, um, you know, uh, meant to be. Story of Simon Wiesenthal never knew how much Frank Sinatra admired him. He never, he, he had no clue. So what happened was, and this is amazing, when we were started, tried to start the Simon Wiesenthal Center, so we had the Yeshiva University of Los Angeles. We opened, we opened Yula, and it was in the same building, one section of the building. And at that time, we had just bought the building, and there were no students, no faculty, nothing. Just a long extension cord of about 150 feet. I had no office. And all of a sudden, I, why did I have the extension cord? Because we're looking, you know, Balabatin might call and, you know, want to help us uh, start Yula. So I had to be near a phone, but I had no office. I had no uh, desk or anything. So uh, the phone rings, and I pick up the phone. and said, yes, uh, this is Rabbi Heyer. And uh, he says, my name is Mickey Rudin. He says, Rabbi, uh, you're starting, you said you want to start that, uh, you're starting the Simon Wiesnall Center. Is that right? Are you going to be in your office for the next uh, hour or two? So I said, I, went, I didn't tell him that it, it wasn't exactly an office. I just had a long extension cord. I said, yeah. He said, well, you're going to get a call from Frank Sinatra. And I said, Frank Sinatra? I said, why is he going to call me? He said, that's a good question. I told him not to call, but he, do, he doesn't listen to me. I'm, I'm his lawyer, but he doesn't listen and about two hours later, just short of two hours, Frank Sinatra calls. He says, Rabbi, are you, uh, you're going to start the Simon Wiesnall Center, right? Can you come to my house this Sunday? He says, I know you, you're not going to come on Saturday, but can you come to my house in Palm Springs? I said, I, I said yeah, Mr. Sinatra. I said, of course. Anyway, come to his house, my wife. And in the living room, he calls his neighbor, Danny Schwartz. So Danny, you have that uh, Jewish directory, you know, people we do business with in the Jewish community. Can you bring it and come over to my house now? And Danny Schwartz comes with this book. 
And Frank Sinatra said, Rabbi, let's begin the solicitation. I'm going to call people and solicit them. Let's get started here. He says, Simon Wiesenthal, he's my hero. He said, we, you know, in the entertainment industry, we, we create false detectives, false heroes. He's the real, de he's the real deal, he says. And he picks up the phone, calls up Don Sofa, who today he owns Turnberry Isle Country Club, one of the wealthiest people in Florida. He says, Don, this is Frank Sinatra. He says, Don, we're starting the assignment Wiesenthal Center so that people won't forget the Holocaust. He said, I'm sending my rabbi down in a couple of weeks. I sure hope you're going to be generous to him, and I mean real generous. And that's that's how it's done. And he he called them up, and I went down there. And sometimes I thought, you know, I'll come in, and the man, you know, I'm going to ask him for a significant amount. I thought he's going to duck. He's the rabbi. He said, don't be afraid, he said. Ask me for what you want. He said, I'll tell you why. I've been out on a golf course with some of my friends in the Jewish community, and I'm telling them, you know who called me up to start the Simon Wiesenthal Center? He said, Frank Sinatra. He said, so whatever I'm going to give you, you have no idea how much business I've done on the, on, the, on the golf club because of that call. And Frank Sinatra, how did he do this? Because in New Jersey, he lived next to a Jewish lady that invited him Hanukkah in their house and he became a lifelong friend of the Jewish people and it was instrumental introduced me to all of the players in Hollywood introduced me that's how we got Elizabeth Taylor and Orson Welles to narrate genocide which won the Academy Award the first Holocaust film in history to win the Academy Award all done by a person that respected the fact that a man like Simon Wiesenthal believed in the idea that you do not, enough is enough. You have to stand up and fight. And the, the concept of Simon Wiesenthal of what he did uh, with respect to the Nazis is what the state of Israel represented to the Jewish people. Without the state of Israel, who knows what would have happened to the Jewish people after the Shoah, whether or not we may have, heaven forbid, disappeared because we were embarrassed as to what happened to us. And so that's how the Wiesenthal Center began. Then a guy like Frank Sinatra, and you know, and uh, I'll never forget that uh, when uh, Sinatra opened, uh, you know, sang in San Francisco to the Moscone Center, he switched the program and he said, ladies and gentlemen, my hero is in the audience today. So usually I begin my concert, I end it when I did it my way. But today I'm beginning it by the man who really did it his way, Simon Wiesenthal. And he began the concert by singing, I did it my way. I, that's, that's an amazing story. I, it's, I mean, it, I don't think such a person exists today. You know, a, a friend of the Jewish people, certainly, I'm not speaking out of turn, but you know, certainly in Hollywood, you know, a celebrity wouldn't come out so strongly in favor of, of the Jewish people, uh, in in such a way, and I mean, I I wonder just to sort of bring us back on track a little bit. I, I wonder how have you seen a shift uh, over your career 
you know, from from that moment sitting with Frank Sinatra in his house as he calls all of his friends, telling them to, you know, be, be generous. It used to be easy to, to spot an anti-Semite. They, they used to wear uniforms. What are some of the challenges, what are the biggest challenges now where we seem to be being attacked from all sides? Well, the biggest challenge, uh, yes, there are, there are. Today it's different. But I want you to know, um, since we opened the center and I gave you the, the history, the background, let's say the entertainment community, particularly Frank Sinatra, We've reached out and we make it, it's very important to reach out. There are many communities that don't know, you, you know, in other words, that's called, we have to make our case. And you, when you make your case and people, a lot of people have misinformation. You know, and I told you before that when the New York Times or other newspapers skipped the idea on the 80th anniversary of the Muftis going to Jerusalem. So... It's, that's, our, that's our job. Our job of the Jewish community, particularly Jews living in diaspora, is we have to do that public relations work for the state of Israel. It's, our, it's important for us to reach out. You, we can't uh, say to ourselves, oh, no, let's forget about the entertainment community. It's too important of a community that influences the world. We can't afford to say that. We have to reach out to them. The Wiesendahl Center, all of our dinners, Every year, it's done by the entertainment community. They know where we stand. They know where we stand on Israel. We don't keep it a secret. But if you reach out to people, you talk to them, you explain to them, you tell them the fact that most of them have no idea how small Israel is. And when you make when you make that effort, it pays off in the end. So I would I would never give up on that. I would never say to people, you know what? Well, many people in the entertainment community, they're very negative on Israel. That's awful. Let's let's reverse that. Let's talk to them. The Wiesenthal Center has had 40 dinners. And they, all the dinners are sponsored by the entertainment community. They're amongst the leading contributors to the side Wiesenthal Center. And we do not change our position. What I'm telling you is what I tell them. Do you think, I mean, something I heard recently from, uh, from on an, another a, a Jewish podcast, they were talking about anti-Semitism in particular in England, but I think it's people, similar things are heard in America as well, where they say, you know, why, do, why are people, why are Jews being attacked in England or America? You know, what do Jews in America and England have to do with the actions of a sovereign state 3,000 miles away that they don't even pay taxes to? With, but at the same time, Jews in America and England, as you say, also have a key role in proudly supporting the state of Israel, making the case for Israel. How can they balance that, those two things? On the one hand, saying, well, Jews in America or in the diaspora are not responsible for what happens in Israel, while at the same time saying, well, we are responsible for it because we need to support it and be proud of it. Okay, that's a very good question. And I would answer it with a brilliant word from Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik a magnificent word that people should remember. Rav says like this, how come after the greatest event that occurred in Jewish history, the exodus from Egypt, what was the person in charge doing on the night of the exodus? Mo Moshe Rabbein. He was carrying the bones of Joseph. Vayikach 
Moshe, Moshe took Atzmas Yosef Imo, the bones of Yosef, he carried out. On the night that you're you're organizing the redemption from Egypt, you got time to do that, says Rav Soloveitchik. What are you doing that for? And the Rav, he says like this. He says, it's to teach us that the you cannot be redeemed only with the Ten Commandments, with the tablets. To protect yourself, you have to learn to carry out, carry on your shoulders those memories of the bones. The bones, he says, the bones of Paro, the bones of what we would say, the Aetolans, the Isis, the Al-Qaeda's of the world, the Hamans of the world. We've got to carry those bones with us all the time. Otherwise, the redemption will never will not be pure and not be successful. So he says, even though Moses just took down the Ten Commandments, what isn't it enough to carry? What are you doing with the what are you doing with the bones of Joseph? He says, if you forget the bones of Joseph, to speak out against it, to to make sure that you're educated about it. And you only go out with the tablets thinking that the rest of the world will be nice to you. They won't be nice to you. Then you'll have Hamas on your shoulders, the Iranians on your shoulders. So you, when you go out of Mitzrayim, take the bones with you. Speak about the Holocaust. Speak about the unfairness about Iran. That even now they deny the Holocaust. The only way in which we can survive is if we always take with us the bones of Joseph, the bones of the Holocaust, the bones of Al-Qaeda that are trying to do to us, then we will remain successful. I guess also looking at responses, uh, looking at how we perpetuate, you know, those bones, as you say. Can you tell us a bit about um, the Museum of Tolerance, both in LA and also soon coming soon to Yerushalayim? I believe. Yes. Um, and how is that? How is that part of your work? And how is that part of the response? The, the Jewish community's response. The Museum of Tolerance, both in we've just redone both of them. The uh, we've just finished redoing the um, Museum of Tolerance um, <clears throat> social lab section here in Los Angeles. We got a grant from the uh, from the from the governor of ten million dollars. We've just finished that. We've not opened because of the pandemic. In Jerusalem, the museum will speak to the world. It's not an insult when I'm going to tell you this. It, the Museum of Tolerance Jerusalem is not an Israeli institution. If we say we're only going to talk about the issues of Israel and ignore the world, ignore Iran, ignore what's going on of the denials of the Holocaust, the rest of the world, no. We're going to speak to the world, and there's a new world out there. We want to make friends with the UAE. We want to make friends with, we've already, over the last 15 years. You know that the king of Bahrain, you wouldn't believe this. How did the king of Bahrain, uh, you know, I, may, I, I, I gave him a brocha when I met him in the palace. And uh, the, nobody knows, the, people don't know, the king of Bahrain, um, he during the, the Arab boycott, the King of Bahrain is a loyal friend, loves Frank Sinatra, sings his songs. During the Arab boycott, he ordered the record. He ordered the records. 
he ordered the, the, the records to come. And CBS didn't send the records because there was a boycott against sending the uh, records to, uh, you know, they, there was a boycott against uh, CBS because they said CBS is loyal to the state of Israel. So they wouldn't send the king the records. When I met him, he, he, we were told this whole story. And every day, the king likes to sing Sinatra songs. And basically, he is a friend of the Jewish people. And so are the UAE leaders today, friends of the Jewish people. They want to have business relations with the Jewish people. They need Israel to maybe protect them against the Iranians and others. And this is a new world. And our museum in Israel will speak to that world. We're not only looking for Jews to come or Israelis to come to the Museum of Tower in Jerusalem. If only Israelis came and only Jews came, the museum would be a failure. We want to attract Arabs. We want to attract people from India, people from Turkey, people from around the world so that we can make friends. So it's not when I say that the exhibits in Israel are not going to speak only to Israelis. That's a compliment for Israel. Israel needs friends around the world. Israel doesn't want to be isolated. We don't want to we don't want to leave the world to UNRWA. We want to leave the world where people in the in the in the regions in the Middle East and others have their own minds and are going to say, you know what? Thank God there's an Israel. And in order to change that, that's how the Museum of Tolerance has to reflect, has to speak to the world, not only speak to Israelis. I suppose my, my, my next question, and perhaps our final question, depending on, the, on how much time we have left, what can the next generation of, of young Jews be doing to combat anti-Semitism? To basically uh, say, you know, what I said, I uh, repeated before, the history of the world is we don't live for hundreds and hundreds of years without violence and military attacks and terrorist attacks. So we should take note before we go to fly to other planets, let's make sure our own planet is safe. You know, one of the reasons I saw now that everybody, you know, everybody, is on Mars. We have cameras on Mars and the Russians, the Chinese and the Americans. But here's the point. What do we see on Mars? On Mars, we see the planet is gone. There's nothing there. All there is is sand and sandstorms, etc. If we don't want the Earth to look like that, we better take care of our planet. And we need a lot of people to speak out. You can't just pick up the paper and say, oh, that's somebody else's business. If you see something wrong in the New York Times or anywhere else, we need help. You can't say, you know what? Ah, there must be five, 600 Jewish people or Jewish leaders. Leave it to them. This is not my business. My business is I got to make a living. As Rav Soloveitchik said, Moshe Rabbeinu, you can't go out the world. You can't go out to the world only with the tablets. You got to teach them. We have to p teach people in the, in, the, in the United States Congress today what happened. Look how long it took. Why didn't they bomb the tracks to Auschwitz? Why did it take so long? Those are the questions, and we don't want it to repeat itself. So we need more people to be, to, you know, to uh, take up this uh, cause. Now, I'm not saying they have to take up this cause eight hours a day, but every person should devote time to be, a, if you're a Jew, Help Israel. Stand up for the Jewish people. Don't leave it to just a few leaders. You're also a potential leader. 
because we, we can't live isolated because we don't want ever our planet to look the way Mars looks today. Rabbi Haya, thank you so much. You told us how uh, Simon Wiesenthal taught you the importance of speaking proudly, talking loudly in the lobby of the Intercontinental Hotel. And you've taught us that message as well today and hopefully our listeners as well. The importance of, uh, of being proud of our voice, making sure that we have a voice, talking loudly. Um, and sh- we shouldn't live in a time where we're, we're scared to talk, talk loudly and proudly. Um, and thank you so much uh, for joining us today on the podcast. The pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That's all we've got time for for this episode of the Karen podcast. Arie, if people would like to be in touch with anything we've spoken about, uh, how can they do so? Uh, you can email podcast at corinpub.com and you can also find us on all social medias at Corin Publishers. Uh, don't forget, if you haven't already, to buy a copy of Rabbi Hire's book, Meant to Be, uh, on the Corin Publishers website, corinpub.com, um, and is available at a special discount together with all of our books using promo code podcast at checkout if you like the stories that Rabbi Haya shared in today's podcast you will love the stories and more found in his book so it's definitely one to pick up this week until next time